Section 23 of the History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy. Translated by William Masfin Roberts. Book 4, Chapters 8 to 20. Chapter 8. The Institution of the Censorship. Whether there were tribunes this year, or whether they were replaced by consuls, there is no doubt that the following year the consuls were Marcus Gaganius Maserinus and Titus Quinctius Capitolinus, the former consul for the second time, the latter for the fifth time. This year saw the beginning of the censorship, an office which, starting from small beginnings, grew to be of such importance that it had the regulations of the conduct and morals of Rome, the control of the Senate and the equestrian order. The power of honoring and degrading was also in the hands of these magistrates. The legal rights connected with public places and private property and the revenues of the Roman people were under their absolute control. Its origin was due to the fact that no census had been taken of the people for many years, and it could no longer be postponed, whilst the consuls, with so many wars impending, did not feel at liberty to undertake the task. It was suggested in the Senate that as the business would be a complicated and laborious one, not at all suitable for the consuls, a special magistrate was needed who should superintend the registrars, and have the custody of the lists and assessment schedules and fix the valuation of the property and the status of citizens at his discretion. Though the suggestion was not of great importance, the Senate gladly adopted it, as it would add to the number of patrician magistrates in the state, and I think that they anticipated what actually happened, that the influence of those who held the office would soon enhance its authority and dignity. The tribunes, too, looking more at the need which certainly existed for such an office than at the luster which would attend its administration, offered no opposition, lest they should appear to be raising troublesome difficulties even in small matters. The foremost men of the state declined the honor, so Paprius and Sempronius, about whose consulship doubts were entertained, were elected by the suffrages of the people to conduct the census. Their election to this magistracy made up for the incompleteness of their consulship. For the duties they had to discharge, they were called censors. Chapter 9. The Siege and Relief of Ardea Whilst this was going on in Rome, ambassadors came from Ardea, appealing, in the name of the ancient alliance and recently renewed treaty, for help for their city, which was almost destroyed. They were not allowed, they said, to enjoy the peace which in pursuance of the soundest policy they had maintained with Rome owing to internal disputes. The origin and occasion of these is said to have been party struggles, which have been and will be more ruinous to the majority of states than external wars or famine and pestilence or whatever else is ascribed to the wrath of the gods as the last evil 
which a state can suffer. Two young men were courting a maiden of plebeian descent, celebrated for her beauty. One of them, the girl's equal in point of birth, was encouraged by her guardians, who belonged to the same class. The other, a young noble, captivated solely by her beauty, was supported by the sympathy and goodwill of the nobility. Party feeling had even penetrated into the girl's home, for the mother, who wanted her daughter to make as splendid a match as possible, preferred the young noble. Whilst the guardians, carrying their partisanship even into such a matter as this, were working for the man of their own class. As the matter could not be settled within the four walls of the house, they brought it into court. After hearing the appeals of the mother and of the guardians, the magistrates granted the disposal of the girl's hand in accordance with the mother's wishes. But violence won the day, for the guardians, after haranguing a number of their partisans in the forum on the inequity of the verdict, collected a body of men and carried off the maiden from her mother's house. They were met by a still more determined troop of nobles. Assembled to follow their young comrade, who was furious at the outrage. A desperate fight ensued, and the plebeians got the worst of it. In a very different spirit from the Roman plebs, they marched, fully armed, out of the city and took possession of a hill, from which they raided the lands of the nobles and laid them waste with fire and sword. A multitude of artists, who had previously taken no part in the conflict, excited by the hope of plunder, joined them and preparations were made to besiege the city. All the horrors of war were present in the city, as though it had been infected with madness of the two young men who were seeking fatal nuptials out of their country's ruin. Both sides felt the need of addition to their strength. The nobles prevailed on the Romans to come to the relief of their belaggered city. The plebs induced the Volscians to join them in attacking Ardea. The Volscians, under the leadership of Cluelius the Aequin, were the first to come, and drew lines of circumvallation round the enemy's walls. When news of this reached Rome, the consul Marcus Gaganius at once left with an army and fixed his camp three miles distant from the enemy, and as the day was declining, he ordered his men to rest. At the fourth watch, he ordered an advance and so expeditiously was the task undertaken and completed that at sunrise the Volscians saw themselves enclosed by a stronger circumvallation than the one which they had themselves carried around the city. In another direction, the consuls constructed a covered way up to the wall of Ardea, by which his friends in the city could go to and fro. Chapter 10 Up to that time, the Volscian commander had not laid in any stock of provisions, as he had been able to maintain his army upon the corn carried off each day from the surrounding country. Now, however, that he was suddenly shut in by the Roman lines, he found himself destitute of everything. He invited the consul to a conference, and said that if the object for which the Romans had come was to raise the siege, he would withdraw the Volscians. The consul replied that it was for the defeated side to submit to terms, 
not to impose them. And as the Volskians had come at their own pleasure to attack the allies of Rome, they should not depart on the same terms. He required them to lay down their arms, surrender their general, and make acknowledgment of their defeat by placing themselves under his orders. Otherwise, whether they remained or departed, he would prove a relentless foe, and would rather carry back to Rome a victory over them than a faithless peace. The only hope of the Volskians lay in their arms, and slight as it was, they risked it. The ground was unfavorable to them for fighting, still more so for flight. As they were being cut down in all directions, they begged for quarter, but they were only allowed to get away after their general had been surrendered, their arms given up, and they themselves sent under the yoke. Covered with disgrace and disaster, they departed with only one garment apiece. They halted not far from the city of Tusculum, and owing to an old grudge which that city had against them, they were suddenly attacked, and defenseless as they were, suffered severe punishment, few being left to carry the news of the disaster. The consul settled the troubles in Ardea by beheading the ringleaders of the disturbance and confiscating their property to the treasury of the city. The citizens considered that the injustice of the recent decision was removed by the great service that Rome had rendered. But the Senate thought that something ought still to be done to wipe out the record of national avarice. The consul Quinctius achieved the difficult task of rivaling in his civil administration the military renown of his colleague. He showed such care to maintain peace and concord by tempering justice equally for the highest and the lowest, that whilst the Senate looked upon him as a stern consul, the plebeians regarded him as a lenient one. He held his ground against the tribunes more by personal authority than by active opposition. Five consulships marked by the same even tenor of conduct, a whole lifetime passed in a manner worthy of a consul, invested the man himself with almost more reverence than the office he filled. Whilst these two men were consuls, there was no talk of military tribunes. Chapter 11 the new consuls were Marcus Fabius Vibulanus and Postumius Abutus Cornicinen. The previous year was regarded by the neighboring peoples, whether friendly or hostile, as chiefly memorable because of the trouble taken to help Ardea in its peril. The new consuls, aware that there were succeeding men distinguished both at home and abroad, were all the more anxious to obliterate from men's minds the infamous judgment. Accordingly, they obtained a senatorial decree ordering that as the population of Ardea had been seriously reduced through the internal disturbances, a body of colonists should be sent there as a protection against the Volskians. This was the reason alleged in the text of the decree, to prevent their intention of rescinding the judgment from being suspected by the plebs and tribunes. They had, however, privately agreed that the majority of the colonists should consist of Rutulians, that no land should be allotted other than what had been appropriated under the infamous judgment, and that not a single sod should be assigned to a Roman till all the Rutulians had received their share. 
So the land went back to the Ardeats. Agrippa Meninius, Titus Cluelius Siculus, and Marcus Ebutus Helva were the triumvirs appointed to superintend the settlement of the colony. Their office was not only extremely unpopular, but they gave great offense to the plebs by assigning to allies land, which the Roman people had formerly adjudged to be their own. Even with the leaders of the patricians, they were out of favor, because they had refused to allow themselves to be influenced by any of them. The tribunes impeached them, but they avoided all further vexatious proceedings by enrolling themselves amongst the settlers and remaining in the colony, which they now possessed as a testimony to their justice and integrity. Chapter 12 There was peace abroad and at home during this time, and the following year, when Gaius Furius Pacillus and Marcus Paprius Crassus were consuls. The sacred games, which in accordance with a decree of the Senate had been vowed by the decimvirs on the occasion of the secession of the plebs, were celebrated this year. Poetilius, who had again raised the question of division of territory, was made tribune. He made fruitless efforts to create sedition, and was unable to prevail upon the consuls to bring the question before the Senate. After a great struggle, he succeeded so far in that the Senate should be consulted as to whether the next elections should be held for consuls or for consular tribunes. They ordered consuls to be elected. The tribunes' menaces were laughed at when he threatened to obstruct the levy at a time when all the neighboring states were quiet and there was no necessity for war or for any preparations for war. Internal Troubles Proculius Giganius Masarinus and Lucius Menenius Lenatus were the consuls for the year which followed this state of tranquility, a year remarkable for a multiplicity of disasters and dangers, seditions, famine, and the imminent risk of the people being bribed to bow their necks to despotic power. A foreign war alone was wanting. Had this come to aggravate the universal distress, resistance, would hardly have been possible, even with the help of all of the gods. The misfortune began with a famine, owing to either the year being unfavorable to the crops, or to the cultivation of the land being abandoned for the attractions of political meetings and city life. Both causes are assigned. The Senate blamed the idleness of the plebeians, and the tribunes charged the consuls at one time with dishonesty, at another with negligence. At last they induced the plebs, with the acquiescence of the Senate, to appoint as prefect of the corn market, Lucius Minucius. In that capacity, he was more successful in guarding liberty than in the discharge of his office. Though in the end he deservedly won gratitude and reputation for having relieved the scarcity. He dispatched numerous agents by sea and land to visit the surrounding nations. But as, with the sole exception of Etruria, who furnished a small supply, their mission was fruitless. He made no impression on the market. He then devoted himself to the careful adjustment of the scarcity, and obliged all who possessed any corn to declare the amount, and after retaining a month's supply for themselves, sell the rest to the government. By cutting down the daily rations of the slaves to one half, 
by holding up the corn merchants to public execration. By rigorous and inquisitorial methods, he revealed the prevailing distress more than he relieved it. Many of the plebs lost all hope, and rather than drag on a life of misery, muffled their heads and threw themselves into the Tiber. Chapter 13 The Treason and Death of Spurius Malius It was at that time that Spurius Malius, a member of the equestrian order, and a very wealthy man for those days, entered upon an undertaking, serviceable in itself, but forming a very bad precedent and dictated by still worse motives. Through the instrumentality of his clients and foreign friends, he purchased corn in Etruria. And this very circumstance, I believe, hampered the government in their efforts to cheapen the market. He distributed this corn gratis, and so won the hearts of the plebeians by this generosity, that whenever he moved, conspicuous and consequential, beyond any ordinary mortal, they followed him. And this popularity seemed to his hopes a sure earnest of a consulship. But the minds of men are never satisfied with fortune's promises. And he began to entertain loftier and unattainable aims. He knew the consulship would have to be won in the teeth of the patricians, so he began to dream of royalty. After all his grand schemes and efforts, he looked upon that as the only fitting reward, which, owing to its greatness, must be won by the greatest exertions. The consular elections were now close at hand, and as his plans were not yet matured, this circumstance proved his ruin. Titus Quinctius Capitolinus, a very awkward man for anyone meditating revolution, was chosen consul for the sixth time. Agrippa Meninius, surnamed Lenatus, was assigned to him as his colleague. Lucius Minucius was either reappointed prefect of the corn market, or his original appointment was an indefinite period as long as circumstances required. There is nothing definitely stated beyond the fact that the name of the prefect was entered on the linen rolls among the magistrates for both years. Minucius was discharging the same function as a state official, which Malius had undertaken as a private citizen. The same class of people frequented both their houses. He made a discovery, which he brought to the notice of the Senate, namely, that arms were being collected in Malius's house, and that he was holding secret meetings at which plans were being undoubtedly formed to establish a monarchy. The moment for action was not yet fixed, but everything else had been settled. The tribunes had been bought over to betray the liberties of the people, and these leaders of the populace had had their various parts assigned to them. He had, he said, delayed making his report till it was almost too late for the public safety, lest he should appear to be the author of vague and groundless suspicions. On hearing this, the leaders of the Senate censored the consuls of the previous year for having allowed those free distributions of corn and secret meetings to go on, and they were equally severe on the new consuls for having waited till the prefect of the corn market had made his report, for the matter was of such importance that the consuls ought not only to have reported it, but also dealt with it. 
In reply, Quinctius said that the censor on the consoles was undeserved, for, hampered as they were by the laws giving the right of appeal, which were passed to weaken their authority, they were far from possessing as much power as will to punish the atrocious attempt with the severity it deserved. What was wanted was not only a strong man, but one who was free to act unshackled by the laws. He should therefore nominate Lucius Quinctius as dictator, for he had the courage and resolution which such great powers demanded. This was met with universal approval. Quinctius at first refused and asked them what they meant by exposing him at the close of his life to such a bitter struggle. At last, after well-merited commendations were showered upon him from all parts of the house, and he was assured that in that aged mind there was not only more wisdom, but more courage than in all the rest. Whilst the consul adhered to his decision, he yielded. After a prayer to heaven that in such a time of danger his old age might not prove a source of harm or discredit to the Republic, Cincinnatus was made dictator. He appointed Gaius Servilius Alla as his master of the horse. Chapter 14 The next day, after posting guards at different points, he came down to the forum. The novelty and the mystery of the thing drew the attention of the plebs towards him. Malius and his confederates recognized that this tremendous power was directed against them. Whilst those who knew nothing of the plot asked what disturbance or sudden outbreak of war called for the supreme authority of a dictator, or required Quinctius, after reaching his eightieth year, to assume the government of the Republic. Servilius, the master of the horse, was dispatched by the dictator to Malius with the message, The dictator summons you. Alarmed at the summons, he inquired what it meant. Servilius explained that he had to stand his trial and clear himself of the charge brought against him by Minucius in the Senate. On this, Malius retreated amongst his troops of adherence, and looking round at them, began to slink away. When an officer, by order of the master of the horse, seized him and began to drag him away, the bystanders rescued him, and as he fled he implored the protection of the Roman plebs, and said that he was the victim of a conspiracy amongst the patricians because he had acted generously towards the plebs. He entreated them to come to his help in this terrible crisis and not suffer him to be butchered before their eyes. Whilst he was making these appeals, Servilius overtook him and slew him. Besprinkled with the dead man's blood and surrounded by a troop of young patricians, he returned to the dictator and reported that Malius, after being summoned to appear before him, had driven away his officer and cited the populace to riot, and had now met with the punishment he deserved. Well done, said the dictator. Gaius Servilius, you have delivered the Republic. Chapter 15 The populace did not know what to make of the deed, and were becoming excited. The dictator ordered them to be summoned to an assembly. He declared that Malius had been lawfully slain, 
even if he were guiltless of treason, because he had refused to come to the dictator when summoned by the master of the horse. He, Cincinnatus, had sat to investigate the case. After it had been investigated, Malleus would have been treated in accordance with the results. He was not to be dealt with like an ordinary citizen. For though born amongst a free people under laws and settled rights, in a city from which he knew that royalty had been expelled, and in the very same year the sons of the king's sister, children of the consul who liberated his country, had, on the discovery of a conspiracy for restoring royalty, been beheaded by their own father, a city from which Colatinus Tarquin, the consul, had been ordered to lay down his office and go into exile, because the very name Tarquin was detested, in a city which some years later Spurius Cassius had been punished for entertaining designs of sovereignty, a city in which recently the Decemvirs had been punished by confiscation, exile, and death because of a tyranny as despotic as that of kings, in that city Malleus had conceived hopes of sovereignty. And who was this man? Although no nobility of birth, no honors, no services to the state paved the way for any man to sovereign power, still, it was their consulship, their decemvirates, the honors achieved by them and their ancestors, and the splendor of their families that raised the ambitions of the Claudii and the Cassi to an impious height. But Spurius Malleus, to whom the tribuneship of the plebs was a thing to be wished for rather than hoped for, a wealthy corn factor, hoped to buy the liberty of his fellow citizens for a couple pounds of spelt, and imagined that by throwing a little corn to them, he could reduce to slavery the men who had conquered all the neighboring states, and that he, whom the state could hardly stomach as a senator, would be tolerated as a king. Possessing the power and insignia of Romulus, who had sprung from the gods and been carried back to the gods. His act must be regarded as a portent quite as much as a crime. For that portent, his blood was not sufficient expiation. Those walls within which such madness had been conceived must be leveled to the ground, and his property contaminated by the price of treason confiscated to the state. Chapter 16 So far the dictator. He then gave orders for the house to be forthwith raised to the ground, that the place where it stood might be a perpetual reminder of impious hopes crushed. It was afterwards called the Aquamalium. Lucius Minucius was presented with the image of a golden ox set up outside the Trigeminan gate. As he distributed the corn, which had belonged to Malleus, at the price of one as per bushel. The plebs raised no objection to his being thus honored. I find it stated in some authorities that this Minucius went over from the patricians to the plebeians, and after being co-opted as an eleventh tribune, quelled a disturbance which arose in consequence of the death of Malleus. It is, however, hardly credible that the Senate would have allowed this increase in the number of tribunes, or that such a precedent, above all others, should have been introduced by a patrician, or that, if 
that concession had been once made, the plebs should not have adhered to it, or at all events tried to do so. But the most conclusive refutation of the lying inscription on his image is to be found in a provision of the law passed a few years previously, that it should not be lawful for tribunes to co-opt a colleague. Quintius Cecilius, Quintius Junius, and Sextus Titinius were the only members of the colleague of tribunes who did not support the proposal to honor Minucius, and they never ceased to attack Minucius and Servilius in turn before the assembly and charged them with the undeserved death of Malius. They succeeded in securing the creation of military tribunes instead of consuls at the next election, for they felt no doubt that for the six vacancies that number could now be elected some of the plebeians by giving out that they would avenge the death of Malius would be elected. But in spite of the excitement amongst the plebeians owing to the numerous commotions through the year, they did not create more than three tribunes with consular powers. Amongst them, Lucius Quinctius, the son of the Cincinnatus, who, as dictator, incurred such odium that it was made the pretext for disturbances. Mamercus Aemilius pulled the highest numbers of votes. Lucius Julius came in third. Chapter 17 The Revolt of Fidenae During their magistracy, Fidenae, where a body of Romans were settled, revolted to Lars Tolumnius, king of the Veientines. The revolt was made worse by a crime. Gaius Fulcinius, Cloelius Tullus, Spurius Antius, and Lucius Roscius, who were sent as envoys to ascertain the reasons for this change of policy, were murdered by order of Tolumnius. Some try to exculpate the king by alleging that whilst playing at dice he made a lucky throw and used an ambiguous expression, which might be taken to be an order for death, and that the Fidenates took it so. And this was the reason for the death of the envoys. This is incredible. It is impossible to believe that when the Fidenates, his new allies, came to consult him as to committing a murder in defiance of the law of nations, he should not have turned his thoughts from the game or should afterwards have imputed the crime to a misunderstanding. It is much more probable that he wished the Fidenates to be implicated in such an awful crime in order to make it impossible for them to hope for any reconciliation with Rome. The statues of the murdered envoys were set up in the rostra. Owing to the proximity of the Veientines and Fidenates, and still more to the heinous crime with which they began the war, the struggle threatened to be a desperate one. Anxiety for the national safety kept the plebs quiet, and their tribunes raised no difficulties in the election of Marcus Gaganius Maserinus as consul for the third time, and Lucius Sergius Fidenes, who, I believe, was so called for the war which he afterwards conducted. He was the first who fought a successful action with the king of Vai on this side of the Anio. The victory he gained was by no means a bloodless one. There was more mourning for their countrymen who were lost than joy over the defeat of the enemy. 
Owing to the critical aspect of affairs, the Senate ordered Mamercus Aemilius to be proclaimed dictator. He chose as his master of the horse Lucius Quinctius Cincinnatus, who had been his colleague in the College of Consular Tribunes the previous year, a young man worthy of his father. To the force levied by the consuls were added a number of war-seasoned veteran centurions to fill up the number of those lost in the late battle. The dictator ordered Quinctius Capitolinus and Marcus Fabius Vibulanus to accompany him as seconds in command. The higher power of the dictator, wielded by a man quite equal to it, dislodged the enemy from Roman territory and sent him across the Anio. He occupied the line of hills between Fidene and the Anio, where he entrenched himself, and did not go down into the plains until the legions of the Faleri had come to his support. Then the camp of the Etruscans was formed in front of the walls of Fidene. The Roman dictator chose a position not far from them, at the junction of the Anio and the Tiber and extended his lines as far as possible from the one river to the other. The next day he led his men out to battle. Chapter 18 Amongst the enemy, there was diversity of opinion. The men of Faleri, impatient at serving so far from home, and full of self-confidence, demanded battle. Those of Vi and Fidene placed more hope in a prolongation of the war. Although Tolumnius was more inclined to the opinion of his own men, he announced that he would give battle the next day. In case the Falskians should refuse to serve through a protracted campaign, this hesitation on part of the enemy gave the dictator and the Romans fresh courage. The next day, Whilst the soldiers were declaring that unless they had the chance of fighting, they would attack the enemy's camp and city, both armies advanced on the level ground between their respective camps. The Veientine general, who was greatly superior in numbers, sent a detachment around the back of the hills to attack the Roman camp during the battle. The armies of the three states were stationed thus. The Veientines were on the right wing, the Falskians on the left, and the Fidenates in the center. The dictator led his right wing against the Falskians. Capitolinus Quictius directed the attack of the left against the Veientines, whilst the master of the horse advanced with his cavalry against the enemy's center. For a few moments, all was silent and motionless, as the Etruscans would not commence the fight unless they were compelled, and the dictator was watching the citadel of Rome and waiting for the agreed signal from the augurs as soon as the omens should prove favorable. No sooner had he caught sight of it than he let loose the cavalry, who, raising a loud battle cry, charged. The infantry followed with a furious onslaught. In no quarter did the legions of Etruria stand the Roman charge. Their cavalry offered the stoutest resistance, and the king himself, by far the bravest of them, charged the Romans whilst they were scattered everywhere in pursuit of the enemy, and so prolonged the contest. Chapter 19 
There was in the cavalry on that day a military tribune named Aulus Cornelius Cossus, a remarkably handsome man, and equally distinguished for strength and courage, and proud of his family name, which, illustrious as it was, when he inherited it, was rendered still more so when he left it to his posterity. When he saw the Roman squadron shaken by the repeated charges of Tolumnius in whatever direction he rode, and recognized him as he galloped along the entire line, conspicuous in his royal habiliments, he exclaimed, Is this the breaker of treaties between man and man? The violator of the law of nations? Is it the will of heaven that anything holy should exist on earth? I will slay this man and offer him as a sacrifice to the manes of the murdered envoys. Putting spurs to his horse, he charged with leveled spear against his single foe. And having struck and unhorsed him, he leaped with the aid of his spear to the ground. As the king was attempting to rise, he pushed him back with the boss of his shield, and with repeated spear thrusts pinned him to the earth. Then he despoiled the lifeless body, and cutting off his head, stuck it on his spear, and carrying it in triumph, routed the enemy, who were panic-struck at the king's death. So the enemy's cavalry who had alone made the issue of the contest doubtful, now shared in the general rout. The dictator hotly pursued the flying legions and drove them to their camp with great slaughter. Most of the Fidenates, who were familiar with the country, escaped to the hills. Cossus, with the cavalry, crossed the Tiber and brought to the city an enormous amount of booty from the country of the Veientines. During the battle, there was also an engagement at the Roman camp with the detachment which, as already stated, Tolumnius had sent to attack it. Fabius Vibulanus at first confined himself to the defense of the circuit of his lines, then, while the enemy's attention was wholly directed to forcing the stockade, he made a sortie from the Porta Principalis on the right, and this unexpected attack produced such consternation among the enemy that though there were fewer killed, owing to the smaller number engaged, the flight was just as disorderly as in the main battle. Chapter 20 Successful in all directions, the dictator returned home to enjoy the honor of a triumph granted him by decree of the Senate and resolution of the people. By far the finest sight in the procession was Cossus, bearing the spolia opima of the king he had slain. The soldiers sang rude songs in his honor and placed him on a level with Romulus. He solely dedicated the spoils to Jupiter Feratrius and hung them in his temple near those of Romulus, which were the only ones which at that time were called spolia opima prima. All eyes were turned from the chariot of the dictator to him. He almost monopolized the honors of the day. By order of the people, a crown of gold, a pound in weight, was made at the public expense and placed by the dictator in the capital as an offering to Jupiter. In stating that Cossus placed the Spolia Opima Secunda in the temple of Jupiter Feratrius 
when he was a military tribune, I have followed all the existing authorities. But not only is the designation of Spolio Paima restricted to those which a commander-in-chief has taken from a commander-in-chief, and we know of no commander-in-chief but the one under whose auspices the war is conducted. But I and my authorities are also confuted by the actual inscription on the spoils, which states that Cassus took them when he was consul. Augustus Caesar, the founder and restorer of all the temples, rebuilt the temple of Jupiter Feretreus, which had fallen to ruin through age, and I once heard him say that after entering it, he read that inscription on the linen cuirass with his own eyes. After that, I felt it would be almost a sacrilege to withhold from Cassus the evidence as to his spoils, given by the Caesar who restored that very temple. Whether the mistake, if there be one, may have arisen from the fact that the ancient annals and the linen rolls, the lists of magistrates preserved in the temple of Moneta, which Macer Licinius frequently quotes as authorities, have an Aulus Cornelius Cassus as consul with Titus Quinctius Poenus ten years later. Of this every man must judge for himself, for there is this further reason why so famous a battle could not be transferred to this later date, namely, that during the three years which preceded and followed the consulship of Cassus, war was impossible owing to the pestilence and famine, so that some of the annals, as though they were records of deaths, supply nothing but the names of the consuls. The third year after his consulship has the name of Cossus as a consular tribune, and in the same year he is entered as master of the horse, in which capacity he fought another brilliant cavalry action. Everyone is at liberty to form his own conjecture, these doubtful points, in my belief, can be made to support any opinion. The fact remains that the man who fought the battle placed the newly won spoils in the sacred shrine near Jupiter himself, to whom they were consecrated, and with Romulus in full view, two witnesses to be dreaded by any forger, and that he described himself in the inscription as Aulus Cornelius Cassus, Consul. End of section 23